Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we're going to talk about spiritual warfare and the government. And we have a special guest with us to talk about that who's written a book about that very subject. Cody Cook is a theology graduate student and film buff living in Cincinnati, Ohio, with his wife and family. He's the host of the Cantus Firmus Podcast, and he is the author of a book called Fight the Powers, What the Bible Says About the Relationship Between Spiritual Forces and Human Governments. Cody, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I wanted you to come on our show because your book talks about something that not a lot of Christians seem to talk about, uh, at least not in the circles that I run. We don't talk about spiritual warfare a lot. If Christians are more on the left, they definitely don't. Um, and we've got Richard Beck to kind of bring them in to <laughs> be okay talking about that. But uh, you know, a lot of Christians just really don't really don't talk about it. And it's important that we understand what the Bible has to say about it because it really especially for libertarians, because it really does have a lot to say about the relationship between principalities and powers and the government and, and, and the state. So, you know, I'm really happy for you to come on and kind of answer some questions about this, because I think there's, there's just a lot of unknowns as well. And you've kind of done some research to talk about that. Before we get into some of the specifics of your book, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you even come to write this book? Like what, what was the reason behind it? What were some things leading up to it, et cetera? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So uh, I think I started the book as an essay originally uh, and sort of a podcast as well that was really just more about the practical side of how we interact uh, with the state or how Christians should interact with the state. And I, I came down on a more explicitly libertarian position in that. And and um, I what I guess I kind of realized was that I hadn't really developed the theory much. So I have the practical stuff about how we should relate to the state, but I didn't really give a lot of explanations behind why that is the way it is, why the Bible tells us to interact with the state in the way that it does. And so over time, I I think I just sort of tried to put these two things together, the theory and the practice. And uh, as I was working on this book and people would ask me, you know, what it was about, what it was, what I was working on, I would say, well, it's two parts. The first part is demonology and the second part is political theory. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so basically uh, that's really the idea behind the book is, is looking at what the Bible does have to say about these spiritual forces, these spiritual powers, uh, how that relates to political powers. And then that helps us, I think, to ground some of the statements we do see in scripture about powers and principalities or uh, uh, Satan is the Lord of uh, this world and, and those kinds of things. So why do Christians even need to think about the relationship to the state? I mean, why can't we just, you know, preach the gospel that, you know, God wants us to have eternal life and we love people and carry on with our lives? Why why do we even need to care in a theological sense about the state? I know it influences our lives. And so, of course, in that sense, it's like, OK, we have high taxes. We don't like that. Uh, <laughs> let's 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 do something. But why should a Christian care? Yeah, I think we I think it depends on how highly we value scripture. <laughs> because if we value scripture highly, then we should be interested in what scripture has to say about this topic. And so that that's I guess my 
my first answer to that question. And I think my second answer to the question is that one way or another, we are going to end up getting involved in this issue, whether it's to make a, a choice to abstain completely, as you see, like the Anabaptist separatist uh, Christians do, uh, then you know, all the way on the far end where you have like theonomy and, and some of these very hands-on uh, positions where they're trying to actually bring uh, their interpretations of God's law into state laws. So I think one way or another, we're, we're going to end up having to deal with this issue. So I think we ought to start with Scripture and, and see what it has to tell us and then let that inform how we act out and how we do interact with the state. What do you think most Christians get wrong about the state? I think one of the things we get wrong about the state is that we see it far too often from a very secular vantage point that we get concerned primarily um, with pragmatics. Mm. We're worried about, um, and I just had a, a conversation with, uh, I'm a grad student right now working through a theology degree, and I just had a, a conversation with one of my professors who's kind of more religious right. And the school that um, I've attended is conservative holiness, very traditional, and so like conservative that I remember taking an ethics course where there was this whole discussion about, you know, would it be appropriate to lie to uh, Nazis about the fact that you're you're holding, uh, keeping you know, Jews in your attic and you know, keeping them from the state? And where they sort of came down was like, well, no, I mean, the Bible says, you know, lying is immoral. So you couldn't you couldn't actually lie. You know, you'd have to find some way to <laughs> to not lie, but, but keep them safe or whatever. But then when it comes <laughs> But then when it comes to these political issues, we get so pragmatic and suddenly we're very secularly minded. We're not, uh, you know, we don't have any sense in this idea that God's got this and we can trust him and that we can simply do what we're supposed to do <laughs> and and stand up for what we believe in, that we know we have to compromise. You know, uh, we have to vote for this candidate or that candidate, because if we don't, then the other side is going to win and uh, then we lose completely. And, and so I think that's one thing. And maybe related to that is this idea that politics is a zero-sum game, that if the other side doesn't lose, then we don't win. <laughs> and I think that's one of the other major issues that I see as, as a problem. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it, is like we we have to make sure the other side loses. That's very – in a way, that's very un-American, uh, I would say, because you know if, if America was founded on the concept of freedom, it's it seems to me that – we somehow need to figure out the attitude should be that how do we make each other win? And uh, that, that seems to be very, very opposite of the attitude that people take with politics. Yeah, I agree. I, I think one of the, the main, it's not as much of an issue anymore, but one of the major issues for me where I saw this was gay marriage, where we saw it as, I think we agreed to play this game where it was winner take all. Mm. So either, either the, the evangelicals won or, you know, the, the gay lobby won basically. And if they won, that meant we lost. And if we won, that meant that they lost. <laughs> and uh, it seemed to me that that was, I mean, completely the wrong approach. We should have never agreed to play a game with those rules. Yeah. So how would you define the state? And do you see the state as anything different from just government in general? Or is there, are, are they the same? How would you describe the difference? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've always sort of liked my, my libertarian instinct is, is sort of to say something like uh, the monopoly on force. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but. I'm thinking back to what Walter Wink said when he was trying to distinguish between powers and principalities, which I don't quite agree with this definition, but he did something where he saw, you know, one of them is like, like this emergent property, the spiritual quality, whereas the other is kind of this more material thing. <laughs> and maybe that's, maybe that's how I would distinguish between the state and government. The government is something that is a little more concrete, whereas the state is related, but it's, it's kind of, I don't know, more of this idea behind what government is and what it does. Um, it's broader, I guess, in a way. Yeah. I don't know. What's behind that question and how would you answer that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the way I think of the the government and the state is I often will say that we need and, and this is sort of like, you know, because I, I always am straddling that fence between anarchism and minarchism in a sense, especially when you're talking with people. And it's like, especially people who aren't libertarians. I mean, that debate is an intra-libertarian debate in a lot of ways. And so when I talk about things like government, it's like, well, I don't I don't see governance as, as bad. I mean, we need – there needs to be – and I don't mean needs as in like there needs to be a top-down version of it. But there does need to be order in some fashion. Mm. And there is a sense in which government – as an sort of an adjective describing the order that society has is very different when you have an institution that legitimate or not legitimate is an institution founded on violence and its only mechanism is coercion and violence. You know, I think, you know, Frederick Bastiat said, uh, I don't know how exactly he puts it because it's been a few years since I've read it, but in the law, he talks about how if people are able to defend their property in a natural rights situation, they're also able to band together and defend it collectively. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, that's not really the state. Yeah. I mean, we kind of conflate those today, but we have, that's government in a way. And so that make, that's a very different thing from what I think you're talking about in your book, whereas we have this thing called the state that is related to some things that we don't really, and, and I'll let you get into what it's related to, but we have this thing called the state that is against the will of God uh, in a very in, in a variety of ways. Yeah, I, I wonder if, if the distinction. I mean, we think about things that are like governments. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the mob is like a government. <laughs> you know, there's order and structure, and there's force. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I wonder if the, the distinction is that when the government uses force, there's this sense that people have that it's entitled to. So maybe it's an acceptance of a monopoly of force that that one uh, group mm-hmm. of people has on others or yeah. has on everyone else in society. Yeah, there is that. I mean, I had this thought once that I wonder if some of the reasons we should complain that that government exists in the way that it does is that there are, there are, is a majority of people around us that want it. You know, because, you know, if you think about what progressives often complain about, they complain about things like the success of Amazon and Walmart. And what they really ought to be upset about is that the people all around them are asking for Amazon and Walmart to be successful because they're shopping there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as libertarians, we can in in some way sort of have the same lament and say, oh, my goodness, you people, why are you endorsing the state? It's your fault and <laughs> not just this thing that's out there. And so it, you're right. There is an acceptance there, an entitlement to have a say. Uh, I believe uh, Greg Boyd says it um, that, you know, in a sense, we can you know, compared to what it was like in the early church and Caesar lets us, he wants our opinion on how he should run things. That would be sort of a mixed metaphor on things, you know, the way democracy works, but it's still Caesar Mm. at the end of the day. It's still this power that is antithetical to the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a little bit of a tangent, but it's worthwhile in the conversation. Um, But so you you talk about your, in your book, you kind of go through the scripture in the first part so why don't you take us through some of the most important aspects of that? And by the way, we're talking about the book Fight the Powers. Listeners can go uh, – where can they Where can they get this? Uh, primarily on Amazon. On Amazon. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Cody Cook, author of Fight the Powers. So, Cody, tell us what the first kind of half of your book does with, with scripture. Yeah. So the first half tries to make a uh, case kind of built on biblical theology running from the Old Testament to the New Testament with a little detour in the middle on some of the intertestamental data that bridges the gap between the two. So I guess you could probably start with Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, You have this idea of man having dominion over the earth and that that's something that God has willed and desires. And then 
you have this this issue with the serpent and you have man being kicked out of Eden and you have this sort of fall from grace. And a lot of scholars have looked back and seen uh, what's happening in Genesis 3 there with the serpent as the serpent usurping this power that we have, this authority that we have to rule over the world. And um, it's implicit in the text if it's there at all, although it does, it is interesting that once you get to uh, Satan's temptation of Jesus, he claims to have that authority. So the question would be, how does he get it? <laughs> what you see then next, though, in Genesis uh, Gen- uh, chapters 10 and 11, in chapters 10, you see this lineage, these uh, uh, this, uh, nations descended from Noah, and there are 70 nations specifically mentioned. And then, of course, you think, okay, well, where do these nations come from? Well, that, that question is answered in, in chapter 11, where you have the Tower of Babel. And what's interesting about the Tower of Babel is that it is referred to in other biblical passages. One of the most uh, famous, I think, is Deuteronomy 32, which comes up a lot in the book in, in various ways. But in verse 8 in uh, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, we read, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And this idea of the sons of God, we see that that phrase used in Scripture in various places and similar phrases as well, refers to angelic beings. And so this is reflecting back on what we're reading in um, Genesis and the Tower of Babel, that there is a division of mankind and that they are divided up and put under the authority of these angelic beings. If you kind of skip ahead a little bit into Psalm 82, uh, you have God presiding over the assembly of the gods, the, the, what, we, what is called uh, the divine council. And he is criticizing these uh, members of the divine council who have authority over the nations because they have very badly botched their job. They're showing partiality to the wicked. They're not giving justice to the weak and the fatherless. They're not maintaining the right of the afflicted and the destitute. And God says, you know, you you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And there's a lot of other places that that reflect on this idea, this relationship uh, between divine beings and and, um, human kings. But one of the places that we could go to is Daniel chapter 10 where this angel is coming to Daniel and says, I've been held back. Um, I've been stopped by the prince of Persia. And he's in this passage clearly referring to an angelic being. But he also says that after the prince of Persia falls, we will have uh, the prince of Greece will rise up. And so historically, you know that after the kingdom of the Medo-Persia falls, the, the kingdom of Greece is established as this major empire. And so Daniel is connecting these ideas too, that behind these human powers, there are angelic powers. Suddenly then, of course, we move into uh, you know Luke uh, 4, 5, and 7, which I mentioned earlier, where um, Satan is tempting Jesus and, and saying he'll, he'll give, um, he uh, tries to give him all the kingdoms of the world, saying, I, I have uh, the authority to do so. I can give it to anyone I want because it's been given to me. And the question is, well, who gives it to him? And, and it seems to be either man in Genesis 3 or you could argue perhaps God in Genesis 10 and 11, and then you know filtered through Deuteronomy 32 and its interpretation of uh, the Tower of Babel. And what's interesting is Jesus does not challenge Satan's notion that he is the one who has the power over the kingdoms of the earth. And in fact, a uh, number of places, especially in John, I think John says it three times, uh, Satan is referred to as the God of this world. So th- that's kind of your, your 
the big picture thing. There, there's some other things that come in as well that are important. Um, Revelation 12 and 13, I think, reflects this idea as well. You have uh, Satan who has power over the kingdoms and gives them to whomever he chooses. You also uh, have this discussion, Paul, of the powers and principalities, the arche and exousia. Uh, and this it's this kind of two-pronged um, description that sometimes applies to earthly kingdoms and sometimes applies to these angelic beings. And it's not always clear which it is. So um, there's there's a lot of other places I, I could go with this, but ultimately the biblical picture does present this idea that the nations are held in bondage to these demonic beings. Um, Pentecost actually in, in Acts chapter two reverses this in some sense, because instead of everybody speaking different languages and being divided up into different nations, they're all speaking the same tongue. So you have a reversal of Pentecost and now suddenly you have the gospel, not only for the Jews, but for the whole world, that God is reclaiming the nations. But at this point, he has yet to do so uh, by reclaiming the political uh, authority that's over them <laughs> or the spiritual authority that's over them. So what ends up happening is that you have this other kind of alternative kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, as uh, Jesus says in John eighteen thirty six, that is different than the physical kingdoms of the earth. You have a chapter in the book on between the Testaments. And, you know, as a Protestant, I paid zero attention to the time between the Testaments, you know, growing up in Sunday school and going to church and even going to college and even seminary. Mm. We didn't talk about the period between the Testaments very much. I mean, maybe we talked about it in seminary, but that would have been like the only time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's fascinating to me when I read Christians talk about that time between the Testaments, because it's a really helpful thing to get our minds around what was happening. So give us a little bit of what was going on there and what you learned. Yeah. Well, one of the things that that comes up a lot is this idea of the 70 nations. And I mentioned that in uh, Genesis 10, that that number comes up and you do see that a lot in some of this intertestamental literature where it talks about the division of the nations or of the angels that are placed over them. That number 70, I mean, comes up all the time. And actually, what's interesting is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of uh, Genesis 10 there, uh, has a different number. It ends up being 72, (laughs) which is is fascinating because when the New Testament reflects on that in uh, Luke 10, uh, 9 and 18, you have the 70 disciples that are sent out, although there's a variation that says it's 72. (laughs) Ah. And so they're, they're going out and preaching the gospel, you know, all over. And Jesus connects this with Satan falling like lightning from heaven. But this number of 70, because they're reading Genesis 10 and 11 and Deuteronomy 32, they keep focusing on this number. So that's one thing that you see come up a lot. Other than that, you do have this, you know, complicated picture of what's happening as far as God judging the Jews by uh, using pagan nations. And part of that comes from the Old Testament itself, because you see places like Isaiah 47 and Jeremiah 25, where, you know, God is sending in Babylon to judge Judah, uh, but then he's not always pleased with the job they do. He says they went too far or something to that effect. And so they're, they're looking at these nations and seeing these other sort of spiritual powers behind them. One of the places I think that's perhaps most interesting is in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran and in the War Scroll that uh, describes this, this coming battle between the children of light and the children of darkness. And the dark children of the sons of darkness are defined um, as the Romans, uh, but they're also connected with Satan and evil angelic forces of his kingdom. And so you have these 
this battle happening, really two battles happening at the same time, one above and one below, you know, one between, you know, Rome and, and Judah and the other between Satan and his angels and the angels of God. So th- that's some of the stuff that you're going to see in that intertestamental period. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that the Bible has this, I wouldn't say throughout, but there's many places in the Bible where there's there's something more going on than what's just seen on the surface. And you almost have to have eyes to see it in, in, a, in a way, knowing that there is this sort of spiritual realm that's also taking place. Yes. Yeah. So what is... What about the New Testament? Like, let's go into that a little bit. I mean, you you briefly mentioned Jesus and his interaction with Satan and the early church. What did what did Paul have to say? Yeah, good question. So, Paul, one of the things that we I mentioned that he talks about a lot is this arche and exousia, which comes from the Greek uh, Septuagint and Daniel. So, Daniel seven refers to these powers and principalities, and seems to at least primarily be thinking about angelic powers and principalities. Although there there is some debate there because Daniel 7 is also about these beasts that we read about in Daniel 2 that Nebuchadnezzar sees as, you know, beautiful things made of gold and silver. But, you know, God sees them as these these beasts that are just fit to be thrown into the fire. But Paul kind of adopts this language. You see it in some other New Testament authors as well. I think maybe Luke uses it, uh, but he uses it to refer to uh, physical, um, like, you know, earthly powers and principalities. But Paul sometimes uses it to refer to earthly principalities. Sometimes he uses it to refer to these spiritual beings. Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he encourages Christians to be subject to the arche and exousia, uh, referring there to physical magistrates. But Ephesians 3, 2, on the other hand, I think is pretty clearly referring to spiritual forces because he talks about the gospel message being made known to the arche and exousia in the heavenly places. Then you get to a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, 24, where we read that Christ is going to abolish all arche and exousia, all powers and principalities in heaven and, uh, well, either in heaven or on earth or both. I would presume both (laughs) at the end of the age, um, that he's now seated in the heavenly places above all uh, powers and principalities. And so that's, I think, part of what you're going to find in Paul. What's interesting is, you know, probably where a lot of people are going to go to is, is Romans chapter 13. Actually, really quick, I will say uh, Ephesians 6.12 is one of these major passages where you read about the, the arcane exousia. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And it, it's also the passage where we read about the kind of weapons that we have to fight them, not carnal weapons, but spiritual weapons. Then I think when you move to Romans 13, which is where most people go with Paul, there's a lot that can be said about that. I'd probably start by saying that people usually don't read it with chapter 12. So in chapter 12, you read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, uh, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that word, uh, vengeance, is used, or actually don't avenge yourself. So that's a verbal form, but the uh, the nominal form is used in the next chapter where the state is described as an avenger. So Paul is at, at one level, he's actually distinguishing what the state does from what Christians do, that the states use violence and that in some sense they serve God by doing so, but Christians are encouraged to basically have nothing to do with that. So that's one part of the answer. But the other thing is that he's quoting Deuteronomy 32 there. He's quoting that vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. You know, that's that's not something that Paul is just coming, is coming out of his mind. 
it's coming from his reading of the Old Testament. And if you read that chapter in 32, it's about, in a lot of senses, it's about God judging the nations. Uh, he, he's speaking of these pagans saying that their nation's void of counsel. There's no understanding in them. Their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamities at hand and their doom comes swiftly. So what's interesting is a lot of people think that in Romans 13, where Paul is talking about obeying these powers, uh, these earthly powers, because they serve God, He's quoting a passage that says the opposite, <laughs> that what is actually happening uh, with these powers is that they they don't know God at all and that they're often behaving wickedly. Other people point out that he uh, the language that he's using there parallels language from an intertestamental writing, the wisdom of Solomon. But even there, the way that the author of wisdom is writing, it contradicts the point that Paul is supposedly making because he says – Authority was given to the nations, or actually not to the nations. In this case, it's um, the magistrates in Israel. Uh, authority was given you by the Lord and sovereignty by the Most High, who shall probe your works and scrutinize your counsels. Because though you were ministers of his kingdom, you did not judge rightly and did not keep the law, nor walk according to the will of God. Terribly and swiftly he shall come against you because severe judgment awaits the exalted. For the lowly may be pardoned out of mercy, but the mighty shall be mightily put to the test. And so when you see what we saw uh, last year with Jeff Sessions, um, the former attorney general, smirking and quoting Romans 13 and saying, you know, it's, it's a good thing to, to, to obey the law and follow the government, <laughs> you know, as if it, like somehow the government was not responsible, that he, did, that he had no accountability to God because he was uh, <laughs> serving God. But, but this passage that Paul's alluding to is saying the mighty, those with power, shall be mightily put to the test. There, there's a severe judgment. That awaits. So, you know, and I do quote in the book um, a scholar named T.L. Carter. He wrote an article called The Irony of Romans 13. And he argues really that what we're seeing in Romans 13 in a lot of senses is irony, that Paul is writing this message in such a way that his readers who are familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with what he's quoting, will, will, will get what he's saying. Uh, but someone who might happen to get a hold of these letters will not see this severe criticism of the state that's implied in these passages that he's actually citing. And I think there may be something to that as well. How does this affect our Christian living um, more practically? Because, you know, you do talk in your book about the different kind of, I don't know if you call them models, but there are different models in my mind of how Christians should engage the state. You alluded to earlier in our, in our conversation here to the Anabaptists, which is kind of more separatist way of doing things. And then of course you have the people who are like, you know, they make their whole Christian faith about being, you know, tied in with the state in a lot of ways, as in like, Oh, you know, I'm a God and country kind of person. So how do we find our way in all of this? I mean, there's just so many, there's, there's, there's a lot of options out there. And, you know, of course, everybody's going to find bits and pieces of each one of them, but yeah. where do you, where do you advise people when we have these conversations? Yeah. I mean, I don't blame the Anabaptists because I think a lot of what they're saying on the surface feels very scriptural. I mean, you have uh, Jesus and John 1836, as I'd mentioned earlier, saying his kingdom's not of his, not, not of this world. Therefore his servants don't fight. And he's drawing a very, I mean, hard and fast distinction between the kingdom kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. Yeah. At the same time, you do have these places in the New Testament where, like, for example, Paul demands his rights as a Roman citizen. <laughs> and so you know, 
to me, that, that, that complicates matters a little bit. He's not just willing to, to take whatever they dish out. He sort of says, you have a responsibility here. And, you know, I'm going to <laughs> stick my chest out and, and demand that you meet it, you know, and, and he is willing to embarrass the state and, and make a show of, uh, of them by demanding his rights publicly. So I mean, one of the things that I see there is that even though we, we have to distinguish these things, at the same time, there's nothing wrong with us sticking up for those who are being abused by the state. And if you look at some of these Old Testament prophets, Amos comes to mind because Amos is giving these oracles against Israel, uh, oracles against Judah, but also oracles against these pagan kings who know nothing of God's law. And so when Amos is criticizing Israel, he criticizes them for not keeping the Sabbath, for, for forgetting the Mosaic law. But then when he's criticizing these pagan nations, he's criticizing them for being warmongers and for taking advantage of the poor. And so there seems to be this idea that, you know, yes, maybe Christians or Jews have these unique moral imperatives, but even a pagan state or, you know, non-Christian or whatever, still, you know, God expects them to, to see that justice is done in the most basic sense, as you might distinguish natural law from or natural revelation from supernatural revelation. So I, I have a problem with what you see uh, in some of these more reformational models, which tend toward theonomy or something like it, this idea that the, the, the state and the church come together in a way that's not always easy to pull them apart. Uh, the Lutheran idea of the two kingdoms, I don't really like either, because what ends up happening there is that for, for Luther, you're a, a citizen of both kingdoms. And so... The Christian, according to Luther, he may uh, slay and stab, rob and burn as one does his enemy. And even though he has the teaching of Christ that they should not resist evil but endure everything, he says that's fine because, you know, as to their bodies and property, they're subject to the civil authority. And so for, for Luther, the two kingdoms idea is not that there's the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men and that Christians should be very careful about getting involved in these non-Christian kingdoms, but that indeed you should be in both you know and and that you have obligations to one that i would say means that you're breaking your obligation to the other so in the book you may get a sense of a libertarian leaning on my part but i'm i'm careful to not really give a whole theology of libertarianism or theology behind libertarianism where i kind of focus on is trying to have a message that somebody could take away whether they're like a democrat republican libertarian whatever and it's really just about recognizing that we have a loyalty to God that's primary. And so whatever it is that we bring to the state, we have to remember that our, our, our primary loyalty is to God. And in addition, that God seems to want to distinguish our obligations from the obligations of the state. And so that we don't try to force our unique imperatives as Christians onto the state. So th those are kind of the two main, main takeaways that I see. Do you think we have an obligation to resist or preach against the state? Uh, in what sense? Well, I mean, there's the resistance of things like not voting or there's the speaking out against, you know, the state behaving in certain ways by voting a certain way against, you know, the incumbent or whatever. Those are really kind of really bland ideas, really, because they don't really require much sacrifice. But are there do Christians have any sort of obligation to speak up? and stand up for the rights of people who are being trampled by the state, no matter where that comes from. But I could see a world where 
Christians can just say, oh, well, I'm voting and, you know, that's just the outcome. But there's also a world where we stand up and you protest and you do civil disobedience and, you know, those the kinds of things that lead to more proactive, outspoken, proactive actions by Christians. And I don't mean violence, uh, of course, but do we have an obligation to speak out more prominently or is that a matter of individual conscience? Where, where do you land on that? Maybe a little bit of both. I mean, what's interesting is, you know, Jesus never says, uh, write your senator about this situation where, where men are ma- married to each other. So you don't you don't really have very explicit models of activism in the New Testament, which is why I, I say I, it's hard to fault the Anabaptists on some level. Yeah. At the same time, Jesus does say to be peace, that Christians should be peacemakers. And Paul does give us a model of standing up, you know, for himself at, at minimum when the state is trampling on his rights. And I, and I don't see that he would, um, he would argue, well, you know, I, you shouldn't do that for other people. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that it's a little bit of both. I don't know that I could tell every Christian what issues they need to speak up about. <laughs> and especially because I think we do have individual interests and focuses and, and, and issues that we care about that we dedicate ourselves to. But I do think that there's at minimum, there's a room, there's room for Christian activism. How exactly that's going to shake out in every situation that may be, you know, one of those things that involves conscience. But I would say certainly if nothing else, there is one principle that I think is that is very biblical that grounds what the state is supposed to be doing. Even if we you know, see what Paul sees in Romans 13, that the state that he's talking about that's supposed to be doing right and wrong has no sense of God at all and has no sense of Christian imperatives or the law of Moses. But he still says, well, they have obligations. They have things that they're supposed to be doing. I think this idea that humanity is made in the image of God, even if the state won't acknowledge it explicitly, something of that idea should at the very least implicitly inform every law that the state makes. And if it doesn't, I think Christians have every right to stand up and demand that the state make sure that justice is done, basically, that that uh, instead of punishing the innocent or not standing up for the innocent, that the state has an obligation to do the opposite. That's why they're there. If they're not doing yeah. that, then they're not serving their, their God-ordained purpose. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analysis, I think, uh, in terms of yeah, like what, what can we expect. So I'm going to switch gears pretty entirely here. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Um, you know, if, if people are listening to this conversation, they're probably into podcasts, so they might be interested in yours. Tell them what they would find if they if they were listening to Cantus Firma's podcast. Yeah. So I, I've done some different things. I'm actually in the process right now of interviewing biblical scholars, particularly Old Testament scholars, for another book project I've got in mind which is about what I'm seeing is this neo-Marcionite movement to separate the Old Testament from our faith or unhitch it, as Andy Stanley says. So at this point, you're going to start hearing some of that stuff. But one of the things that I do fairly consistently is a uh, sort of a sub-series or whatever within that podcast, which I call Cantus Firmus at the Movies, where I'll have a guest on either somebody who is involved in the entertainment industry or someone who is a philosopher or theologian, you know, someone like that, to talk about a film that they see as significant theologically or philosophically for how they see the world. 
so I, I've had some pretty interesting guests on for that. I've had um, like apologists like Lenny Esposito on, on one side, all the way to um, atheists, to New Testament scholars like Richard Price, who doesn't even think that the historical Jesus existed. Mm. Uh, but he's a but he's a lot of fun, and he wanted to talk about the Matrix, and he knows a lot about Gnosticism. So he, that was that was a great podcast. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so basically guests from different backgrounds and uh, different perspectives talking about movies and and then kind of philosophy and theology as it as it relates to those things. Yeah, cool. Uh, I did have um one of the ones I did um a while ago was about Batman versus Superman and um I had an Ayn Randian, you know, like objectivist, you know, on who's an atheist. Uh, okay. Um and uh, as well as a Christian friend who's uh, an artist. And uh, one of the things that I was really highlighting there was this kind of Moltmannian view of um or answer to the problem of evil that when if, if God is willing to take on flesh and experience evil, then we can trust him, even if we don't always know what he's doing, because he was willing to face it on our behalf. And so you sort of see this in in the, the way Batman and Luther look at Superman, that he's this you know divine being who's unaffected by the things that hurt us. So how could he possibly care about what we care about? And then, you know, as much as it's mocked that whole, uh, you know, why did you say Martha thing was really I mean, it's it's kind of like. You know, you know John uh, at the cross, and Jesus saying, "You know, uh, behold your, you know, son, behold your, your man, behold your mother, or whatever." That that Superman realizes, or Batman realizes in that moment, that Superman has experienced a human frailty that he's taken on the things that that make uh, us human. Hmm. So anyway, ah, that's really cool, man. So the book is called Fight the Powers, What the Bible Says About the Relationship Between Spiritual Forces and Human Governments. The author is Cody Cook, who has just spent some time with us talking about the contents of his book. Uh, You can get it on Amazon. Cody, thanks for being part of our podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.